Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day and kick off a new week. Hope you had a good weekend. I'm just back from San Antonio in the Cattle Industry Convention and now headed out today back to Texas, this time to Houston for the National Ethanol Conference. And I'll be broadcasting from there both tomorrow and Wednesday. Today, we'll get weather from DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We'll talk markets with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. And we'll hear a conversation, a discussion I had last week with Marty Smith, the new president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Uh, Marty's from Florida, and he talks about their accomplishments in the beef industry in 2019 and look ahead to the challenges of 2020. So that's coming up on today's program, but we're very happy to start things off for today and for the week with Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, saw your folks uh, there at uh, the cattle industry convention last week in San Antonio, and it was interesting had Andrew Wheeler there, the EPA administrator. That that was actually a convention uh, he was uh, very well received at because of uh, what's going on with the new WOTUS rules. So uh, would not be the case if he happened to be, say, at the ethanol conference this week in uh, Houston, but uh, he picked the right one to go to last week at the Cattlemen's Convention. Yeah, absolutely. And it is the meeting season, isn't it, Mike? I know that you're Headed back down for the ethanol meeting. We'll have Ben Nolly down there as well. Uh, I'm in Missouri today and then headed to the crop insurance industry meetings uh, later this week. So you can uh, just pretty much pick a day and you'll find uh, somebody in the media, at least the ag media, on the road this time of year. Yeah, it is busy. Uh, I thought it was interesting uh, at the cattle industry convention last week, um, you know, that there are still challenges, and they're still waiting to see on these trade deals. But certainly, as we're seeing with most of the ag meetings uh, this winter, just a, a sigh of relief uh, to get those trade deals that were uh, wrapped up at the end of last year or early this year uh, just gives a, a more positive outlook, at least hope, for this year. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was a huge deal to get – not only phase one, but of the uh, China deal done, as well as USMCA. And I think especially for the beef industry, there's got to be a lot of optimism out there. Uh, The livestock sector as a whole has got to feel a big sigh of relief that these have been done. But of course, Mike, you know, we have this coronavirus that is really slowing everything down in China and in, in lots of areas around the globe where people are just have this uncertainty about how that economy can keep chugging along and keep up with that phase one commitment. I do think that it just goes to what we had talked about last week and that it's probably going to be later than sooner uh, that we're going to have those upticks in in, uh, purchases from the Chinese because of the slowdown in their economy. And now we have the president's budget proposal. These are always interesting. They always get they they get whatever the whatever president uh, whenever a budget proposal comes out, it gets a lot of reaction. Usually, uh, criticism, concerns. If you, if your part of the budget's been cut, uh, what's in his proposal? And we might add, usually these proposals are are never what the end result. Of course, there's a process to go through here. But this gives us uh, plenty to talk about. What's in this budget proposal from the Trump administration for agriculture? Well, Mike, you know, the USDA sometimes does budget briefings and gives you a heads up on these. They did not do that this time, and 
they selectively leaked some of the details to a couple of media outlets. But what we do know is that there's going to be a push for rural infrastructure in this budget. As you mentioned, it's pretty much a guidance for what the president's priorities are. Although uh, when the appropriators start to look at this and they do the budget deals, which aren't expected to be completed until after the November elections, they pretty much ignore what the president has laid out, at least in the democratically controlled House. So I, I don't know that you can put a lot of credence in this, but the president is signaling that he wants at least $25 billion for a new revitalizing rural America grant program for high-speed Internet and transportation projects. So that's good news for people out in rural America. They're looking at the need of not only uh, broadband that works, but fixing some of the roads and, and those sorts of, sorts of things. So uh, we know that the president traditionally has also proposed cuts uh, for uh, high-income earners under the farm program and sometimes cuts for crop insurance subsidies. So we're waiting to see if those return as well. Yeah, so that'll be a big topic of conversation going forward. We did hear uh, last week talking with uh, Senator Grassley. He told us he thinks an infrastructure bill will get done this year, or at least has a good chance to. So we'll we'll keep a close watch on that. Meanwhile, I wanted to mention, uh, Sarah, that, that uh, your team at AgriPulse, you've been doing a lot of in-depth reporting on the dairy industry. I, uh, you know, We seem to have a new dairy expert uh, speaking out now based on what happened. I didn't watch it, but I've seen clips of it now from the Oscars last night. All of a sudden, Joaquin Phoenix uh, seems to think that he has uh, a lot of knowledge about the dairy industry. But I've got a feeling those in the dairy industry – uh, do not agree with him. Well, you're absolutely right. We've been doing a five-part series on dairy under our Deep Dive podcast, but I think what happened last night is just another good reason to boycott the Oscars <laughs> because, like, <laughs> you know, so many of these people, like uh, Mr. Phoenix, really don't speak from an informed, experienced uh, subject, you know, background, and uh, they get corralled by some of the animal rights folks, and they make these comments that just seem so totally off the wall. And uh, it's unfortunate that they have a kind of a megaphone at the Oscars program. Yeah, I must admit, I don't follow Joaquin Phoenix very closely, but that one just seemed to come out of left field all of a sudden, uh, you know, going after the dairy industry. I, I, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> no, I think it was a little hard to see what you're going to get out of the mouths of some of the actors when they hit the uh, mm-hmm. acceptance stage. But uh, again, I think people are, are going to take that for what it's worth. Meanwhile, as I'm headed, and you said as your team, you'll have someone, you'll have been not only there at, well at the ethanol conference this week. It's going to be interesting. Uh, I, I think looking forward, looking to the future for the biodiesel and ethanol industries, uh, this low-carbon fuels policy and how our biofuels industries fit into that, I think that's going to be key moving forward. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think there's a lot of things that they're going to be on the lookout for, not to mention the fact that we've got a lot of companies that are focused on electric vehicles. So uh, in the short term, how does this work with the low-carbon fuel policy? Longer term, what does it mean for the future of the industry? What kind of exports can we see in the foreseeable future to China? Uh, There's a lot of big issues ahead, but uh, again, I think there should be some optimism now that we've got E15, we've got uh, Administrator Wheeler um, not making everybody happy on the RFS, but at least making some progress. And as he told Spencer during the Cattlemen's Convention, 
Uh, it looks like there could be some additional changes on the small refinery waivers as well because of the court case. So you'll have plenty of issues to discuss down in Texas. We sure will. Sarah, as always, thank you for being with us, and uh, your team does such a great job at AgriPulse Communications covering all these topics. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Up next, we talk weather. What's uh, the forecast for the rest of February as we head into March? DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson joins us next on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, so a few weeks ago I go to Tampa and the temperatures drop into the 30s. Last week I go to San Antonio, temperatures dropped into low 30s. They even had sleet. I, I almost feel like I should contact people in Houston and let them know I'm coming down there today because uh, their weather may just <laughs> get all of a sudden cold. I don't know. I looked at the forecast. looks uh, mild enough, although it looks like it'll be rainy down there as I get into to Houston. Let's talk over weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, I just get a feeling this cold weather is following me wherever I go. You are the you're the Arctic harbinger, Mike. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Well, yeah. where... Yeah. What's it look like for? The, I'm I'm going to be out of the Midwest for a few days, headed down to Houston. So what what can we expect this week in the Midwest? Well, the Midwest is uh, is going to still be on the cold side. In fact, uh, some of the coldest uh, temperatures of the season are going to be a big feature. Um, there's a, a kind of a, an open uh, doorway, so to speak, for Arctic air to really plunge deep into the central part of the country. Uh, this week, and it's going to be the first time this season that we've really seen this kind of a, of a widespread cold air outbreak. You know, last year, all of that cold air got going in uh, late January, and then it kind of parked for a long time over the central U.S., but uh, this year, we're going to get a, a, real, uh, a real notable dose of this Arctic cold, and then fortunately, in the next... Uh, Oh, I don't know, the 8- to 14-day time frame starting about uh, mid-next mid week and then all the way through uh, the, uh, the following weekend, uh, the weekend of February 22nd. It's going to be a lot more seasonal. But this week, uh, we will see low temperatures plummet to um, uh, an, an absolute value of around uh, 25 to 30 below zero in the Red River of the North, in uh, North Dakota, northwestern Minnesota, with the wind chill value reaching that minus 40 level and maybe even minus 50. I'm not going to rule that out. Uh, that is, that's especially going to happen on Wednesday with a little light snow, with this uh, Arctic uh, uh, cold wave and uh, the potential for some blizzard conditions to develop. So we're, we're getting the real 
uh, dose of winter. Like I say, the real helping uh, this week, and it's going to, like I say, um, head all the way south and kind of make camp uh, well into the uh, southern plains of the southern Midwest. Not that, not that real, uh, real extreme cold, but still well below normal for much of the country. But a lot of precipitation moving uh, across the country. Uh, some areas already dealing with some flooding. What what do you see there this week? Uh, not much of a let up uh, in that Delta and uh, Tennessee Valley, Ohio Valley area, unfortunately, and that's that's kind of been where the real corridor of the heavy rain has been. I know they had heavy rain in the Northwest. That is that is going to let up uh, during this week, and so that's good news in uh, places like uh, northeastern Oregon and eastern Washington State. But over the Delta, Tennessee Valley, Ohio Valley, we're going to see rainfall totals of, of uh, around six inches or so, and the flood threat is very high. Uh, there's already uh, a lot of the uh, southeastern U.S. under a flash flood watch, possibly going to a flash flood warning. And then uh, there's going to be another wave of uh, heavy rainfall that moves into the Ohio Valley during Tuesday and Wednesday. I'm going to Louisville for the Farm Machinery Show, and, um, you know, it, it's it's treating me or treating the, the scenario like the outdoor farm shows last fall, you know, when, when things got uh, pretty rainy. Uh, we have to consider that it's a farm show, so there's going to be some rainfall going on, and it could be pretty heavy in the Ohio Valley. You'll have a lot of farmers asking you what you think is going to be uh, spring-like conditions, uh, crop planting time for many of them. They're going to want to know what to expect, a repeat of last year or hopefully something better. What are you going to be telling them? Well, I'm afraid that there's going to be at least uh, somewhat of a resemblance to a year ago in terms of a uh, delayed start to field work. Now, I don't think that it's going to be uh, quite as uh, chronic as it was last year uh, when we had all of those planning delays, especially the ones that happened uh, in that middle part of May and then uh, well into June. But uh, we have soil uh, moisture levels that are in the 99th percentile all the way from the Dakotas eastward to Michigan and then well into the 90s uh, for the remainder of the northern and central parts of the country. And, and you just can't uh, ignore the, the uh, prospect of that uh, wet ground taking its own time to uh, get into shape for doing field work. And I, I don't think that it's a, it's, uh, a stretch by any means, Mike, uh, to uh, say that there's going to be a pretty extensive uh, amount of acreage that is in the prevented planted category again for this year. Last year we had 20 million acres. That was a record by far. Well, I think we could see several million acres again this year because of uh, how wet things are to start out. Yeah, because as we said before, even if you had normal precipitation totals, which would be far less than what we had in many areas for last year, even normal amounts uh, are going to be a problem because of how saturated the soils are. Yes, uh, very true. And uh, right now, and, and another another feature that goes along with that is that uh, the soils are so wet that uh, the river basin uh, flood or the river basin flow level is already very high because the the banks of the river systems uh, are constantly feeding moisture into the channel. And so uh, even though it's uh, midwinter, we don't have a real uh, pullback in the river levels because they're just getting constantly fed with all this excess moisture. So there still is a lot of concern that a lot of folks have. 
We're talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. All right, Bryce, uh, what's the situation in South America? Well, before I go to Brazil, Mike, I do want to mention that the southwestern plains are going to get more moisture for the winter wheat this week because they will see uh, rain and snow, possibly up to six inches of snow. So that's good moisture for that part of the country. Now, in Brazil, uh, it's actually going to be pulling back a little bit on the rainfall in Mato Grosso this week because uh, they've had uh, some some rounds of pretty heavy rainfall. But this week in Mato Grosso, they're going to get no more than about three inches or so of rain. Uh, so I think the soybean harvest is going to get uh, along quite well. And then right behind that, you know how those guys operate. They've got the big combine crew going, but then they also have tractors and planters lined up to uh, put in the safrina corn crop right behind the combines taking the soybeans out of the field. So they are not going to waste any time in uh, getting that that, uh, safrina corn planted. And I think they're going to have a good week to do that. Well, your week, as you mentioned, you'll be in Louisville this week for the National Farm Machinery Show. You'll get a chance to talk with farmers from several states, won't you? I, I will, and I mean, it's a it's a terrific show. Uh, last year, I was able to talk to growers from, of course, uh, the uh, immediate Ohio Valley area, but we had producers there from New York State. We had several from Nebraska and Iowa who, uh, who attended our programs that Todd Holtman and I did. We had some producers from Canada who were there, and uh, on occasion, and I, know, I know that you've uh, experienced this, we've had growers there from South America who have uh, wanted to check things out. So it will be a good time to to uh, kind of get some details put together about what uh, people are thinking about. As I mentioned, I'm headed uh, to Texas. I'm going down to Houston for the National Ethanol Conference. Planters, I believe, are starting to roll in parts of Texas. They they should be, and uh, I think that uh, they're, they're going to have a, a pretty decent round of that. One thing that I am concerned about just a little farther east is that uh, you know that a lot of growers in the Delta and the Deep South want to uh, get pretty busy after this mid part of February, but with the rainfall that they've got going on, uh, they're going to have a tough time doing that already. Yeah, we're going to be watching that uh, pretty closely. So it sounds like bundle up this week. This could be... And for some, the coldest uh, week, coldest, coldest weather we've had all winter then, right? Yes, it will be. And uh, the, good, the good side of that is that it's going to be intense, but it's not going to be long-lasting. And uh, next week does offer more of a zonal uh, west-to-east airflow with a milder temperature trend. Now, I don't mean I'm going to be running around in a polo next week, but it is going to be more seasonal. All right. Well, Bryce, uh, have fun there in Louisville talking with uh, farmers uh, from several states at the Farm Machinery Show. Have a good time there, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay, Mike. Thank you. Safe travels to you. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Still to come on our program today, we'll be hearing from the new president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Marty Smith from Florida. Before I left the cattle industry convention last week in San Antonio, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Marty, get his thoughts on the accomplishments of 2019 and the challenges still ahead in 2020 for the beef industry. But up next, we're going to talk markets with Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo AgriFinance. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture.
Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grand and oil seed sector a mix to begin the trading week. Some positive signs being seen in soybeans, Kansas City wheat, but Chicago wheat, corn, Minneapolis wheat, all a bit easier. The futures expected to stay fairly quiet today. Traders looking ahead to tomorrow's WASDE report for some price direction. World inventories of grains expected to post only minor moves in that report. Corn and wheat stockpiles around the globe expected to shrink a bit. Soybean supplies could rise a bit. An hour into the trading day, we are one to three and a fraction higher in soybeans. March up three and three quarters, 885 and three quarters. November at 920, up a penny and a half. March corn down three and three quarters, 379 and three quarters. December at 391, down three. Chicago wheat, March contract down three and a half at 555 and a quarter. Kansas City March, penny and a quarter higher, 473 and three quarters. Minneapolis Spring Wheat March, down a half cent at 535 and a quarter. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, the April contract is down 75 at 119.07. Feeder cattle March 25 higher, 135.45, but the back months 35 to 75 cents lower. Limited cash cattle interest expected today. On Friday, we saw live sales mostly 121 falling a dollar from the prior week. Lean hog futures, April down 92, 65.32. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow is up 80 points, NASDAQ composite up 39, the S&P up 10, March crude oil in New York down 40 cents at 49.92. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And joining us now to talk markets is Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo Agrifinance. I know, Steve, you're a little under the weather. Thanks for joining us, though. Well, thank you. Yes, I have been a little bit. I don't, it's just been, everyone's told me there's just a lot going around, and I guess I caught it last week on my way to Colorado and back, I spec, so. Well, we hope you get, hope you get to feeling better. Yep. Well, thanks well, for being thank with. You. Well, let's let's talk about uh, uh, the situation right now with the markets. I mean, we have the optimism of the Phase One U.S.-China trade deal, <laughs> and now everything is really in question or on hold. Even though we've heard uh, reassurances about they're going to uh, honor their commitments of the deal, but this coronavirus situation really is uh, shutting down what was already a slowed economy over there. Well, that's right, and I think you know I think we have to we have to take this seriously. And I, I'm not saying that just because I have been sick, but I think we have to really think about what this means. And and, and doing some reading, I think there's some good things to think. I mean, there's some things we have to consider. So think about that when SARS happened, and that was that's been now I mean, can't count count that high 17 years ago now. Um, you know, China was a lot smaller uh, as far as a, as a piece of the world economy. Uh, two, it was not as interconnected the world economy as it is today, and so the impacts of, of coronavirus have a lot larger impact just because there's because China is a lot bigger than it was 17 years ago. So I think that's the first thing to think about, and and the fact is that they had, you know, you and they've reacted much differently to coronavirus than they did SARS. Um, you know, there's a lot of optimism this will be taken care of here in the first quarter. I think we have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt at the moment. 
uh, concerning what this 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 virus seems to be spread faster. Um, it does seem to have a little more dire effects than SARS, uh, or can have dire more dire effects than SARS. And so I think we have to remember that as well. You know, the good news is, though, I think the thing to think about too. I went back and looked at SARS, looked at markets real quickly about, you know, how did futures markets react back then? And, and frankly, we didn't see futures markets, and I'm thinking specifically about agricultural markets. I'm not thinking about crude oil. Um, they didn't, they were, we didn't see, there was some volatility back in that period of time, but nothing really great. And, and I would, and if anything, I would say they pretty much stayed sideways, which is what they're doing right now, is they're, they're marking time because they don't know we don't know enough information to provide this. There's a lot of uncertainty at the same time, but the fact is the Chinese still have to eat, just like we do, uh, and the rest of the world continues to eat. And so there's, you know, that, and that changes the dynamic too also within the food sector. Out Eating out is going to go away in China, uh, but eating at home is going to increase. And so that will change sort of the, you know, the, the type of food or how the food is distributed and how it will be, will be done. So I think that's a, a big, you know, that's something we have to think about as well. I think one last thing, too, is to think about how China is going to take um, its food in the future. You know, we're used to the United States of huge grocery stores. We go to a grocery store, and I don't care where you are in the country, you're used to a fairly large selection of anything you want at any time you want it at any price level you want. You know, in China, that's not necessarily always the case. You know, the tradition there is wet markets. And many people in the United States are now learning what a wet market is. It's, you know, you're buying fresh meat and vegetables and produce, you know, basically kind of off the street. And it's, they're, they are, they are in buildings. Um, and I've been to them and I, my first reaction I walked in is, well, the FDA and the USDA would not allow this in the United States. Hmm. And, and it's because of, of the sanitary issues. So you have to think that maybe wet markets may be a, a, a bit of the past and that grocery stores uh, will start to be more, of the way of distribution of food in China, which would be good for us because we're, you know, our industry are set up to supply grocery stores, and that probably is good for the meat industry as well because then meat will have to come in differently than it's ever come before animal protein products. So I think there's some things changing. This is I'm certainly not discounting the 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 impact on the economies around the world, and I think that's the thing we have to be a little worried about from agriculture. There's our, the view within the bank is that we will see global economies slow a little bit because in China's will particularly slow a lot. That tends to be, you know, as GDP declines or increases, that increases or decreases global food demand. And so that will be a little bit bearish on commodity markets overall because demand may go down a little bit because economies slow down. But, you know, at this point, I think it's a little bit, you know, I think agriculture markets are going to mark time trying to wait and see how this thing comes out but you know how it how this all comes out yeah i tell you those wet markets that's a cultural shock when you're traveling and you go into those yeah. uh boy I, yeah my my i have a healthy appetite but i usually it kind of <laughs> i lose some of it when i walk into those uh as i've traveled in the past um we're talking yeah, to steve too. nicholson with robo agrofinance steve we just heard from dtm meteorologist bryce anderson talking about the wet conditions and saying he thinks now maybe not another 20 million like we saw last year but he thinks we could see uh, several million prevent plant acres again this year yeah i think that's a really good uh, a really good point on bryce's part and i've heard bryce talk about this you know earlier in the winter as well i think he's he's on i think he's on point you know you think about 
and, and I don't have any data right in front of me to kind of point out to it like Bryce would have, but, you know, it's been a, you know, people say it's been a pretty mild winter. Well, I, I think that's true in the sense of temperature-wise, but you think about how much moisture we've had all winter long. You know, we really haven't had any of those dry times during the winter where it's never been unwet, if you have it. And I think the other thing to think about is think about how much snow is up north of us. And those, you know, for those of us who sit in the middle of the Corn Belt versus the northwestern Corn Belt, it's a lot of snow on the ground in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, that's got to come down the Missouri River and down to the Mississippi, you know, basins. Um, so that gets a, gets you thinking about this spring is that it could be another relatively wet spring, even if we don't get any rain during the springtime at all because there's just going to be so much moisture on the ground and so much moisture come down the rivers before it's all said and done. So, you know, that, that would be the other opportunity, you know, that would be the opportunity um, like we had last spring. If we see markets start to worry about this and think, Oh boy, here we go again. And we get a, we get a rally this spring, you know, remember, you know, you know, you always, you always be cautious about remember what just happened last year because it may not happen again this year. But think about how fast the markets went up last spring and how fast they came back down. And those opportunities were, you know, there was a limited time time window to get that done. And you may get that opportunity in the spring on the marketing side. Well, last week at the cattle industry convention, and this was welcome yeah. news to, to those in the cattle business that will be buying feed, but certainly not good news for those uh, growing uh, uh, grain. Uh, that is, the, the prediction was last week at the cattle industry convention that, those in the cattle industry could probably expect, uh, you know, continued relatively low feed costs. They didn't see much of a jump coming. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I, I think, over, you know, we're going to put weather aside and say weather's normal. I would agree with that, is that if you're a livestock producer, um, <clears throat> you're going to have relatively inexpensive feed costs um, versus what you had 10 years ago. Um, or we'll say, you know, eight years ago, let's say, I guess we'd say six years ago, get my math right here. Um, now, if the weather turns, you know, nasty or un- unfavorable, uh, then that, that may change it. But I do, I do think that's true, and I think it's one of the things you've talked about, and, and Mike, you and I have talked about this, is you know, I think we're, we're, we, were, we are evolving back to the model that we grew up with, where grain was walked off the farm in the mm-hmm. form of, a, of an animal. And I think that's kind of where we're headed now is that it may not be the most profitable to, to haul that grain off the farm. The most profitable place for that grain to get go is to walk off the farm. And I think that's what you're seeing in the cattle industry, the hog industry, and the chicken industry is, is our economy remains good. The demand for animal protein demand remains good as it does globally. And, and that's where probably our value add in row crop side is to have them feed it to a livestock producer. Yeah, the protein demand seems to be yeah, uh, the, the bright spot uh, for this year, certainly. And we're also seeing with a good general economy, we know our ag economy has not been as good, but the general economy here in the U.S. being so strong, that's uh, historically uh, good for uh, the beef industry because uh, that usually means good domestic beef demand, and we've been seeing that. No, absolutely. It's an unbelievable demand for animal protein you know, domestically, and you're absolutely right, is the economy is good, that demand's good, and beef is the be- is the biggest benefactor of that. Um, but you see the demand overseas has been unbelievable. And so we continue to see 25% of pork ex- go, pork is exported. I don't know what that poultry number is, and now you're saying 10 to 12% of beef 
uh, is exported, which is, you know, that's just happened in the last couple of years. And so unbelievable demand. And, and as long as if those livestock industries are, are strong, that will be good for row crop because there'll be a market for that product. Um, and it's also, it's also good for rural communities because livestock tends to turn over the economy more in, in rural communities. Uh, there's more, I, I think the dollar is like for every dollar spent in livestock production is $5, you know, spent in a rural community. So that has a benefit in the rural community as well. So really, um, that's where our, that's our best friend. If you're a row crop producer right now, it's a livestock producer. Yeah, I think that's a big story to watch here in 2020. Yep. Well, Steve, thanks for being with us, and uh, hope you get to feeling better. Thank thanks you. a lot. All well, right. thanks much. Good to talk to you as always, Mike. Take care. Take care. Grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo Agrifinance, Steve Nicholson. Well, uh, Marty Smith is the new president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That transition took place last week at the Cattle Industry Convention in San Antonio. Jennifer Houston wrapping up her year as president, and she had a lot of accomplishments. I was talking with her about, uh, well, it worked out really well before she left office, getting those trade deals signed, new waters of the U.S. rule out. But there's still plenty to do for NCBA, the beef industry. And Marty Smith from Florida takes over the uh, presidency of NCBA. And before I left San Antonio last week, I sat down and talked with the new NCBA president. You'll hear that conversation next here on AOA. Stay with us. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Here at the Cattle Industry Convention in San Antonio, it's kind of the uh, changing of the guard, as you will, new officer team coming in, and the man who will be heading up this organization, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, is president this coming year, is Marty Smith from Florida. And Marty, first of all, congratulations. Uh, just talking with Jennifer Houston, who wrapped up her year as president, I said things timed out pretty good for her. She in USMCA and the China deal and the waters of the U.S., a new rule. But she left a few things for you to work on, didn't she? Uh, yes, I've got to say we have had a great year in 2019, and uh, uh, it's going to be hard to continue that, but we will tr- we will do our best to continue that trend and to continue to, to achieve some of those things, both in Washington, D.C. and around the world. What do you see as priorities for NCBA this coming year? We are continuing to work on trade as... As we, even with the signing of these treaties, there's going to be a lot of details to be worked out and then start to build that export market. Uh, from, a, from an overall perspective, uh, we've got to continue to um, show the consuming public, whether it be domestic or worldwide, the great job that America's beef producers do on all fronts, particularly on the environmental front. Uh, when we talk about climate, when we talk about sustainability, uh, we are the most efficient producers in the world, and we've got to get that message out. You know, more and more our consumers want to know where their beef comes from, where all of their food comes from, and how it was produced. So we, you know, we, we've we've got a lot to work on there. Because you have people out there trying to trying to frame this conversation on climate and the environment 
and painting the beef industry as uh, culprits as as part of the problem instead of the message that you have to tell and say, hey, we're part of the solution here. We're, we're adding, we're benefiting to the environment. That's right. And the facts really bear us out. The studies that have been done by EPA and others really show that America's beef producers are a big part of the solution. We're not the problem. But our opponents, if we want to call them that, people that speak detrimental about all of American agriculture, want to point to old study or you know old reports that were inaccurate use bad information use discredited information and not tell the truth we, it's up to us to get the truth out there but i think there's no doubt the focus is going to be on environmental issues this coming year and for the years to come it, it will be and i mean this whole thing that we talk about what is sustainability what is not sustainable but um, that encompasses all of the environmental part and that's going to be a big issue in the in the uh, 2020 elections but it's also a big issue in terms of uh, how do we grow demand for our beef a lot of other issues to address still too labor issues are going to be very important uh, labor issues are always going to be important for us um, on, on all fronts yes um, you know we've got to in terms of farm and ranch labor but then particularly when you look at the impact that labor regulations labor policy has on the processing transportation etc of, uh, of of all of agricultural products has a big, big impact for us and something we've got to focus on. We've talked so much about trade in this past year, and as you said, there will still be a focus this year on implementing these trade deals, getting new ones, but there does seem to be some real optimism now about moving uh, protein around the world. Uh, there, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of markets out there that looks like we can sell into. Certainly, and I think that uh, clearly U.S. beef is very much in demand throughout the world. Um, and it doesn't matter what country we talk about, but, but particularly those countries where we do have a trading relationship. If we can get the product in there, it is going to be bought. Challenges, you know, they're talking about working out something with the European Union. We know there's been a long-standing issue there with uh, hormones and things like that. So there's a lot to overcome to get that worked out. There is, and uh, kind of fits under that category of non-tariff trade barriers. The European Union are, are, is, is the master of utilizing whatever it is, whether it's hormone, antibiotic, whatever they can label to keep our products out of their <laughs> out of their marketplace. Uh, with Brexit, we'll see how that plays out. That opens up a whole nother potential market. Uh, and, and I think, too, will have impact on the overall European market. There are still there are issues out there that can be very divisive and have been and continue to be. An issue like country of origin labeling, and there, in some places that's kind of been brought up again. Do you see that as be uh, another issue to address again? Uh, do you hear much about that from producers around the country? You know, I can't say that we uh, we don't hear a little bit about it. Country of origin labeling, particularly mandatory country of origin labeling that people were talking about a number of years ago, is getting ready to lead us into a multi-billion dollar um, World Trade Organization in effect, fine or tariff on U.S. beef, um, really was going to destroy our market throughout the world. So, and we don't get deals with countries like China, with USMCA, with Mexico and Canada, with mandatory country of origin labeling. On the other hand, NCBA has long supported, and it's very much part of our written policy, and we, we follow this very closely, 
voluntary country of origin labeling we support. And we have worked with a number of our major retailers with chains to implement more voluntary country of origin labeling. You go to the grocery store, you're going to see more country of origin labeling. Where it's not, man, you know, we don't want to go in a direction of mandatory. We don't want the government telling us how to run our business either. But, uh, you know, it, it, you will see more and more of that. Again, as consumers want to know where their product is coming from. And the voluntary programs are addressing that. What are your thoughts on the wave of imitation meat products coming into the marketplace? What we're seeing with that um, is that there, it, it's probably getting a lot more press than it is actual demand in the store or at the restaurant. And it's not going to be something that directly impacts beef demand. Um, the, the imitation products, or fake meat as we like to call it, is there for people that are probably already vegetarian or vegan and aren't going to eat beef. People that are eating beef are not going to necessarily want to switch and go over to some other fake meat product. We are pushing very hard to make sure that the um, that it's properly labeled and that the consumers know what they're getting. Again, it's a consumer choice, and we promote consumer choice. We won't be able we want consumers to be able to, to choose our products. So we want to make sure, yeah, people can buy what they want. We want them to know what they're getting. Well, Marty, again, congratulations. Look forward to a good year ahead. Good luck to you. Thank you.